Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the ACG Brains and Guts podcast, where we talk to innovators in the field of gastroenterology to provide aspiring innovators with the tools they need and the information needed to reach the next step. And now I'm going to turn it over to my co-host, Topher Kachami, who's going to introduce our guest for the week. Thank you all for joining us. We are privileged to have Dr. Stephen Edmondowitz. Uh, today sharing his expertise. He's a well-known figure in the world of gastroenterology and especially in innovation. Uh, Dr. Edmundowitz is a professor of medicine and the interim division director of gastroenterology and hepatology at the University of Colorado. Uh, he is also the medical director of the Digestive Health Center at the University of Colorado Hospitals. And over the, the course of his 35-year career in gastroenterology, he has mentored many staff, medical residents, and and uh, gastroenterologist and specific uh, therapeutic endoscopist. And uh, many of them hold leadership positions in gastroenterology, and we are grateful for his leadership. Uh, Dr. Edmundowitz uh, remains active in clinical practice, including research, teaching, and administration. He is a consultant and an advisory board member of a number of medical device companies and has participated in multiple clinical and device trials in endoscopy, including ERCP and endoscopic ultrasound. And most recently, he has been uh, heavily involved in innovation, especially in innovative endoscopic devices for the management of GERD, biliary, and pancreatic diseases and obesity. Uh, he is also a co-founder of Aspero Medical and a patent holder in micropillar balloon technology. Uh, thank you for joining us, Dr. Edmundowitz. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Tofik and, and Vlad. And I really uh, want to thank the ACG for, for starting this podcast and uh, for you innovators to move this space forward. Well, so I'm, I'm going to start by asking you uh, straight, uh, straight to the topic. And uh, the topic of this episode is going to be about, you know, reward and benefit for innovation. Uh, innovation can be very rewarding, uh, yet comes with risk. And we physicians are trained to help patients assess risk and benefits. Uh, we don't have the training to assess the risk of benefit of entering this uh, journey. Can you translate this assessment for us uh, into a product development? I can try. So I think the the exciting part about all of this is each idea, each each product is different. So the risks and the rewards are probably different for each one. But in general, when you think of, of us as the physicians, our risks are really our time. And we're going to have to take that time for these product developments from our other buckets of time. So are we going to sacrifice time with the family? Are we going to sacrifice time from our clinical work? Are we going to take time from our academic productivity? Are we going to take time from our teaching experience? All of those are worthwhile and noble efforts that we don't want to degrade to a great degree, but then you have to look at the reward of this of what you could possibly do. You could develop a device or a procedure that helps patients that is not available before. You may develop more knowledge about a disease or a condition than you ever had. You interact with a very different group of individuals from engineers to business individuals, marketing people that may actually modify your career for the future. You gain experience in animal and human studies of new devices. You work with industry as a consultant in the future and an innovator. And again, at the very back end of this, there's a possibility of financial rewards that 
in most cases are probably not as great as we all hope they would be in the beginning, but in some situations they can be extremely rewarding. Well, this is a fantastic statement that really covers uh, a lot of the benefits. I wanted to ask you specifically about also the financial uh, risks. For example, when someone has an idea and they want to try to develop a product, any advice on kind of what the financial risk, in addition to the time they spend, like how much resources they would need to uh, invest in, in such a product, trying to take it from A to Z or from A to whatever they license or they, they uh, move to the next stage. Yeah. Sure. I think that's, that's also very individual and it very much is based on the device the product, the technique, or whatever you're developing, uh, it can be extensive. It, it can be a cost to you in terms of time, effort, and dollars that is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. It can also be the benefits that can be multiples of that. So I think a lot of it depends on the, the individual situation. And then as many of us have learned, there's a number of exit points for this type of innovation. You come up with a great idea that someone else likes, and you could just sell the idea and not go any further with the, the product. You could go to the point where you develop a prototype and you have an, uh, a model for going forward, and you could ask for an exit, and some of the larger manufacturers in the space may want to purchase it at that point in time and give you a, a royalty or some type of continued income for your idea. Or you could go ahead and develop the device, develop the, the, the company, develop the production of it to go through the whole process of essentially manufacturing and selling the device, uh, which is, is, a, is a longer time commitment. It's a, a bigger commitment in terms of your effort as well, uh, but it can have much bigger rewards. So all of those are possible for, uh, for anyone that's innovating in this space. Perfect. And, uh, a question that always comes to mind, and people often try to decide, uh, do I uh, develop the product and have a prototype to license, or do I start a company? Do you have any thoughts on how people make that decision uh, and uh, the, the financial risks in both of these decisions? And they don't have to be accurate, you know, just an idea yeah. of... Uh, well, I, I think it's it, my experience has been that a lot of times those types of decisions are certainly not made in a vacuum. They're Either. often made in response to what the initial uh, appetite for the device, the company, wh whatever you're thinking of developing is amongst the, the major players in the space. So, for example, you could come up with a great idea and a lot of different exits could look at it and say, boy, this is a great idea. We really want this. We're going to compete for you to, to, to develop this further and work for us. You could also come up with an idea that, you know, you take it to five or six or seven different big GI product manufacturers. They all look at it and no one wants to be interested in it, but you still have a good idea and it still has a potential. A lot of times it depends a lot on what the, the, the exits, if you will, the companies that are going to be purchasing this from you to, to mass market or to sell have on their dockets and what they want to do. They may actually have a similar product or a similar uh, area of uh, investment. So they do not want to expand into an idea that you have 
And yet you go and find another company that wants to compete with them and just wants it for the sake of competing. And there was a period of time where, I'll be honest with you, some of the larger surgical companies wanted to buy ideas and essentially bury them on the in, in the in the back room so that they would not compete with their surgical devices that are out there to do a similar type of procedure. So there's lots of pressures in terms of how this goes. And whether you take it to the development stage and sell an idea or whether you actually take it to the to the company phase and build a company and get it out, uh, a lot of that has to depend on the environment, which is the micro environment around you and your innovation and what the support is. I, I love what you said, that these decisions are not made in vacuum. Uh, you know, the, our previous uh, you know, uh, guest uh, talked about getting people's feedback when you're processing, and I'm hearing the same thing uh, from you, that when you want to make these decisions, involve others so you can get an idea of how much effort you can put into it. Absolutely. Uh, uh, one question that I hear uh, often is a product that has a code versus a product that does not have a code. And a lot of uh, people take that as a bifurcation in their in their uh, uh, development process. Can you share your thoughts on that? And you know, for, for people who don't know really what that means, can you uh, tell us what that means? Sure, I think, I think the, the code, no code issue is an important question that you have to ask. Probably the more important question is you have a device or a technique, you want to get it out into people's hands. How is it going to be accepted? How are individuals going to be compensated for using this device? And why is this device, let's say, better than what's already out there? If you have a device that's very similar, that fits into the same scenario of the code, for example, you've developed a new snare that has advantages, it can fall right into the coding that we currently use for snare removal in the upper endoscopy, lower endoscopy, anywhere. On the other hand, if you have a unique device that doesn't fit into that scenario, it uses a, a special type of energy or it creates a totally new procedure that we're not even doing right now, that becomes a bigger challenge because then you have to find a way to justify the cost of that device to the individuals that are going to use it. Typically, that's a long-term process of generating a code for that particular procedure, but there could be steps along the way where individuals will use that device because it saves them time. They can do more procedures in the day, so they're willing to absorb the cost of that device. Or, if you happen to have a device that's extremely effective, it solves a problem that some other uh, we haven't been able to solve, you'll have individuals that want to do it because it will actually put them ahead of other centers in terms of being able to take care of disease processes that other people can't. And then finally, if you have a device that let's say the cost is reasonable and patients really want it, you could go into a self-pay scenario where you don't need a code. You'll have the patients pay out of pocket for these devices. Now, those situations that actually that works in are quite rare because, as we know, most patients don't want to pay out of pocket for, for anything in their health care or the markets of people that can afford to pay significant amounts are quite small. So the, the real 
wonderful thing about innovation is understanding that you have the innovation piece of it, but then you have the business piece of it that you have to understand as well. And the successful companies, the successful ideas that have gone to to be uh, really leaders in our space have had both a great innovation, but also a great business plan to be able to get that into everybody's hands. So the business plan is maybe sometimes as important, if not more important than the they're just equally important. Yeah. I mean, you but, can create a business plan to sell an idea that's not very good, but and we've all seen that happen in certain spaces. <laughs> but in reality, uh, it's not as rewarding as if you have an innovation that's going to actually help people, and then you have a business plan to show how you're going to get that into everybody's hands. And so uh, knowing how important the business plan is, you know how do how does someone when they have an idea and want to decide how much to invest in it determines the market size like that's a question that is probably one of the first questions that people ask when they're when they present an idea what's the market size sure. any advice on how they go about determining the market size well if you're selling an idea you exaggerate your market size as much as possible hey, but <laughs> if you're good. looking to buy an idea you probably minimize the market size as much as possible and we all, all know that there's a lot of flux in how we estimate market size a lot of times I do this by by communicating with my colleagues and getting opinions. There are data sources. You can go to the you know, multiple multiple databases that can give you CPT codes, that can give you diagnostic codes, so you can determine how many individuals have been cared for with a certain disease over a period of time, how many population studies have been done to show what the disease impact is. In general, uh, most of the big companies employ their own database people to tell you what the market size really is. So you may have an idea, but they're probably going to have their own idea of what the true market size is for something that can be taken care of. And uh, how does the market size translate into financial rewards? If a product has a market size of $5 million uh, in sale per year, like what does an innovator expect from that uh, market and we're not looking for accurate numbers just kind of an idea yes of, so yeah. it, and it, and it it would be nice if it was that simple but it's complicated right because what you really have to understand is to to be effective you need to have an effective margin on what you can charge for your device you have to be able to distribute it to a large population where a number of physicians are going to want to use it and so when you really look at where you are in terms of how much does something generate, you have to understand all of that. And then you you have all the added costs of the, the business costs, you have the legal team costs, everything that's added in to getting that market uh, share, getting that device into the place that you want it to be. I think it's very fair to, to also understand that, you know, it, it's a little bit like baseball games. You can hit a lot of singles and doubles and do very well uh, at the end of the day because these little companies, these little ideas that have been so useful in our practice can generate small revenues, but a lot of them, right? Whereas it's very rare and it's harder to have the, the true home run where you develop a, a new device that is accepted by everybody that has a very wide margin and you can take it from your idea to the final product. Steve, so one question, and I think we've touched on this a couple times, but really kind of going back to the beginning, um, I think, you know, the crucial thing 
with all of this is having the right team in place. So the right team to kind of gut check your idea and see, is this something that, you know, is going to be commercially viable? You know, the right team to write a business plan, because let's face it, at the end of the day, 98% of physicians are not business people. And we can look up a business plan on Google, but that doesn't really translate into having something workable. So how do you build that team, both on kind of the clinical gut check side and also on the business side? Yeah, that's it's it's really amazing over the course of my career the different types of teams I've interacted with. Some of the companies that start that are very small, you may have two or three individuals that are each doing three or four different jobs and pulling it all together. And other projects where there's been a lot of upfront investment and you can afford a, a prototype team, you can afford a legal team, you can afford an engineering team. You don't have just one person doing a lot of these tasks. You'll have two or three engineers looking at these issues and trying to solve a, a, a specific mechanical engineering problem for your device. So uh, I think the the team approach that, that VK Sharma talked about is so important, but how that team is constructed is almost as important. And sometimes it's why these incubators of small successful companies are so successful is because they have the same team and they keep moving from idea to idea to put things out. Uh, for those of us that are breaking into the space, it's hard to get into that same group because we really don't know if this person who I'm working with is developing my business plan is good and knows what he's doing or not, because it's likely the first experience you're having with him. So a lot of it has to do with judging characters. A lot of it has to do with interviewing the right people and finding someone. A lot of it has to do with the success records of what individuals have been able to do first and, and relying on them to guide you. Um, and then the team becomes the company, if you will, right? I mean, those people are typically incorporated into the startup and they move forward. There are also a lot of areas that you can uh, essentially job hire or you can consult hire individuals to do things for you. So you can, you can consult with individuals to write grants. You could consult with individuals to do the legal work. You can consult with individuals uh, to do almost anything. Even the engineering can be farmed out uh, piecemeal to different projects if you want to. Uh, and then it's just a matter of deciding, well, how do you make that decision? How do you understand the cost of what it's going to cost you to do this internally versus hiring a firm to build your prototype or build your first devices? This this is a fantastic advice. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm going to jump to two questions. We're going to ask each of our guests. Uh, and uh, we appreciate you sharing your expertise. Uh, the first question is, what is a common financial mistake uh, someone starting that journey makes, in your opinion? I, I think the common financial mistakes are underestimating what the true cost of delivery is going to be and underestimating how much funding you're going to need to get to the finish line. Uh, I think if, if most of the experiences I've had with startups have not been, you know, boy, we have a lot of extra money here. What are we going to do? It's, it's always, you know, how am I going to make it to January? <laughs> and how are we going to get some more funds to get this final problem that we've identified fixed? And so, you know, there are no big reserve banks. There's no one you can tap on to get help from. 
it 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 becomes a challenge. And a lot of small companies have failed because they, they just couldn't raise the funds to continue the mission. Um, I think the second thing is that you have to be careful. You don't want to get sucked into putting a lot of your own money into a project, not knowing, you know, you have the belief, you think it's going to return, but it may not be a really good investment. Uh, so you need to think about how you're going to diversify that and not get caught in a situation where you're holding a lot of the debt, you're, you've paid for a lot of this and it's not going to make it. I was told also that people buying into your project as a vote of confidence makes, makes you more confident that this is a good project. Versus when you go and invest all your money, is it, would you absolutely? Agree I think I think yeah. if if you have a great idea and you believe you have a great idea and you can't convince at least one or two other people that it's a great idea, that's probably a problem. Uh, I think the the other part of this is that you know the financing changes so much. I mean, uh, it, it it's it's a challenge to try to keep it going, but it's also interesting to look at where the sources are. There are small business initiative grants that you can get. There are individual grants from institutions that will give you some money to get started. Not big dollars, but enough to get going to the point where you can attract uh, a VC group or a private equity group that wants to get into this space. <laughs> Just remember that when you go for your first round of funding, there's a payback for that, right? You're going to lose a big portion of the company when you do that. And no one is investing money because they, they really like you or they, they think you have a great idea. All of the equity companies that are investing money are doing it because they want to see a big return. And that is a vote of confidence, but it also sets up quite a, a milestone for you to me. This is a great segue into my next and final question. What is your number one advice for someone starting this, this journey? I think number one is do it because you enjoy it and love it. Uh, enjoy the ride, really experience the whole process. And then I think the, 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 the other aspect of it is, is try to have fun. I mean, it, it is really a wonderful uh, experience. You can learn from a lot of other people. Uh, I don't think you should get too focused on the, the minor details. The, the frustrations will come, but you will have great days that are, that are worth it. And I think it's a very exciting space for everyone to be in a little bit, at least to understand what it's all about. This is fantastic advice. Thank you. We're hearing this uh, over and over that this is fun and people should enjoy the journey. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your expertise. And uh, uh, Vlad, you want to? I uh, would like to thank you, Steve. Thank you for joining. And thank you, everyone in the audience, for joining us for today's episode. And we will see you uh, in a few weeks. Excellent. Thank you all. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Brains and Guts, the GI Innovation Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please subscribe and drop us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us questions and ideas for future episodes to brainsandguts at gi.org. We look forward to talking to you soon.